Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, where we discuss hunting, wildlife, and habitat management, and the dynamics of land ownership. I'm Joe Baia, here today with Clint Flowers, and we got a lot of ground to cover today. First of the show, we're going to be circling back with Daly Thomas. Daly gave us a preview of where land financing may be heading earlier this year, so we're going to get back with him and find out where we are as we head into 2020. And then a little later in the show, we're talking with Norm Latona of Southeastern Pond Management. We're going to learn everything you guys need to know about selecting the best forage fish for bass ponds and raising trophy bass. I think there's going to be some uh, some pearls of wisdom in that one. This week's show is brought to you by Hog Rush. Reducing feral hog populations is an important part of land and wildlife management. Hunting wild hogs with thermal imaging and suppressed weapons during the growing seasons is the most effective way to manage wild hog populations during that time. Aside from those benefits, it's just plain fun and a great way to make memories with your family or clients. If you're interested in a guided hog eradication experience with the highest quality weapons, optics, and properties the South has to offer, contact Hog Rush at 334-430-8111. You can see all the options for small groups or large corporate experiences at hogrush.com. Dot com. Clint, have you done a, a thermal hog hunt yet? I have not. I'm going to have to send you on one, man. It is an absolute blast, pardon the pun. I mean, it is it's so much fun. It's, it's completely different. Uh, being able to see at night is one of the coolest things you can do right now. <laughs> it's so much fun. I was able to go last spring, and man, I just had a ball. I mean, to be able to stalk up on hogs that are out in the middle of an open field, them not know you're there and then empty a 30 round magazine from a, from an AR 15 putting down so many hogs in one night. And the coolest thing I enjoyed about it was the predators. You know, how many coyotes have you killed in your life? I think we killed nine in one night uh, when we were out and it is, uh, it's just amazing. They, they're completely different animals at night. They come to calls, they, they don't spook, you know, even if you do spook one, they're not just going to hightail it out of the, out of the country. You're usually going to get a shot at them. It is so much fun. You got to go try it. But, uh, I understand you were down in Louisiana enjoying the duck opener this past weekend. How'd it go? Yeah, it was a great time with, with longtime friends that, uh, we had a good opening morning. Uh, we were just shy of a two man limit, which is a lot better than really anybody else in the camp. Uh, the birds haven't really showing up yet uh there's a few pockets and areas that have them but other than that not many uh the second morning we did not pull the trigger but we had a good time out there drinking coffee and telling stories so what uh, uh what part of louisiana were you hunting we were outside new orleans uh near bell chase st bernard's parish so uh we did have some good weather at least i was able to get out and do a uh do a little bit of deer hunting and had a good time with that and uh checked on some of my fields fields are doing good looks like uh we've had good rainfall since i put my seed in the ground and uh i got good germination i'm gonna go out and hit it with some liquid fertilizer this weekend and i just can't wait to see how things turn out it looks like i've been so pleased with the way these fronts are lining up you know, it seems like normally we get all the good weather during the week and all the bad weather on the weekends, but it's been just the opposite for about a month now. Yeah, it's not necessarily the best for showing land, but it's great for getting to the hunting camp. Yeah, that's a fact. Well, speaking of showing land, one of the things that we get asked all the time is about financing and, you know, what kind of terms are available, uh, what kind of loan products are out there. Who can give you a loan? What are the interest rates? Uh, we're going to cover all that with Daly Thomas. He's the vice president of the Birmingham branch of First South Farm Credit, and we're going to get a little interest rate update. Daly, how's it been going, man? Doing good, guys. Y'all been doing all right? Doing good. So, Daly, you know, we talked with you earlier in the year, uh, kind of forecasting uh, interest rates and where you thought things were going to go based on, uh, you know, just just some general economic indicators. So where are we now, man? What's uh, What's going on with interest rates on rural land? You know, rates are really good right now. Um, in fact, they're really good when they probably shouldn't be. Uh, it's a little little strange uh, economic environment as far as rates are concerned. You know, we're seeing a lot of really good activity in the economy, and people are feeling good about the economy. And typically, you know, in, in cases like this, you see interest rates rise, which we did for a period, but now they're back down again. I mean, they're really low. They're probably about a percent lower today than they were this time last year, which may not sound like a lot, but it's a pretty good, pretty good bit, you know, especially given just the economic environment we're in right now. What range are you seeing? 
you know, I've got money all the way. Uh, my cheapest money is going to be on the shorter term fixed stuff. It's going to be, you know, just right at 4%, maybe just under for the right person, all the way up to, you know, somewhere around six for that longer term fixed product. Man, 4%. I mean, and then that, that does not factor in y'all's patronage rate, right? So what happens, you know, that 4%, you, essentially your patronage rate's about a percent, right? Yeah, roughly. You know, it, it varies year from year, uh, but roughly it's probably about a percent less than that, or the effective rate is when you take that patronage into account. So, you know, you're talking about money in the threes, which is just on land is unheard of. So, daily in in a situation like this, I, what I'm seeing a lot of in the field is there's a lot of folks retiring. Uh, I'm seeing that a lot. A lot of folks retiring. They're moving out, getting away from the city. They want to buy, you know, 20 to 20 acres and on up uh, and kind of, you know, start to enjoy the country lifestyle, whatever that is for them. And they are interested in buying raw land and putting a house on it or putting a hunting cabin on it or something like that. How do y'all's loans work with regards to construction yeah no you're absolutely right um especially in my market here in birmingham that's i see that more than anybody probably in our company um whether it's people getting ready to retire and move out of the city or just people that are still working but want to raise their kids you know outside of the the hustle and bustle of city life they'll want to buy that 20 30 acre piece put a house on it talking about construction loans i've done more i've done more construction loans this year than i have in six years combined and you know, it's becoming a really popular product that we've got. And, you know, there's a couple different ways that we can set those up. Uh, you want me to just kind of run through those real quick? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, most people are pretty, they're aware that you can get some sort of construction loan, which is typically a, you know, one year interest only, which then will convert to permanent financing. Uh, and that's an option. We have that in place and we can do that. Um, what I've done more this year, though, is we have the ability to go ahead and close permanent financing up front. So instead of having a one-year period where you're only paying interest while the house is under construction, we can go ahead and close permanent financing, lock your deal in and your rate in, you know, wherever rates are at today so you don't run the risk of them shooting up, you know, over the next eight to 12 months while you're building. I've probably done more like that. The only catch there is, you know, you have to you really have to be able to swing two mortgage payments basically because that's essentially what you're doing, especially if you already own your own home. Right. Well, now that sounds like a really awesome option, but what about if somebody runs, how does it, how does it work if somebody runs over budget? Uh, I mean, it happens to me a lot when I'm doing projects uh, on my home. I think it's going to cost X and it ends up costing X plus 20%. If somebody's building a house and they do that permanent, you know, upfront and then their, their build goes over, uh, are they responsible for that that overage, or, or are they able to work with you guys to, you know, increase th- that amount uh, if it makes sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, and that's a great question because I had yet to have a construction project that did not go over budget at least a little <laughs> bit. Um, it, it just doesn't happen. Now we always try to factor in at least ten percent overruns inside the loan on the front end, just to try to get out in front of some of that stuff. You know, we do things along the line too to try to keep keep those overruns to a minimum as far as change orders, you know, approving those, trying to stay on top of the build and where we're at. Uh, but it, it seems like it's almost in- inevitable that something's going to go over. So what, you know, hope in a perfect scenario, we've got enough room in the appraised value and, you know, financially to, to be able to loan that person a little more additional money uh, to get everything finished out. If not, then that's a case where they are going to be responsible for those overruns. Gotcha. Well, it's in, but it sounds like y'all try to factor that in from the get-go. What about a refinance? If if rates are so low, do y'all offer refinance options for people that own land currently, either with you guys or if they don't have a loan with you guys? Yeah, we do. We do absolutely. I get calls all the time. Um, that's just that kind of goes with the banking territory of you know when people see rates start dropping, your phone's going to start ringing with people wanting to refi to get their you know their rate lower, and it makes perfect sense. Um, now, if you're already a customer with First South. It's a real simple process to do that. You know, we don't, really don't have to jump through the hoops of a full-blown refinance. We can just do what we call a no bond, kind of change the maturity date on your fixed period or, or reprice that loan without, you know, like I said, very very minimal process as far as small fee. Maybe you're talking maybe two, $250. Um, no, no new appraisal, stuff like that. That's easy. Now, you know, when we're looking at refinancing another lender's debt, that's where we have to go through a full refinance to where, you know, get new appraisals done, order new title work, 
your cost will be a little bit higher than that. But, you know, if the savings are there with that lower rate, it may be, may be worth it. Well, what I hear in this is a lot of people don't think about it is, you know, well, I'm only going down a, a point or half a point. So that's, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But in this context, if you can keep those fees low, uh, I mean, if you're a farmer or even just a, a landowner of a farm, uh, just, just thinking in terms of straight rent, I mean, these lower interest costs are the same thing as getting a higher rent rate. And a lot of people don't consider that. All they think about is the hassle of having to refi and things like that. But if, you know, saving a 25% potentially on your interest rate may be another ten dollars or $20,000 back in your pocket every year, uh, depending on what size loan and what size farm you have. And, and you know, if you really sit down and build these cost savings and get into your pro forma as a landowner and an investor, it can really pay off. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt, and that's you know that's one thing where we like to really take care of our customers. We're not going to gouge you on fees and stuff. It makes a lot more sense to to look at doing a refinance or a note mod. You know, in our case, where if you're not having to recoup a, a bunch of fees, well, it just makes more sense. You're going to save more money in the long run, even if it costs you two hundred fifty dollars. You know, if you're saving ten grand over the a years or you know the life of the loan, I mean, that's a no brainer. Is there a um size of loan that you guys have to go to committee with or something that you can move a little faster on? Is there a breaking point for y'all on that or is it always a case by case basis? No, I mean, we, we've got levels, you know, loan, different loan amounts that have to go certain steps higher for approval. And there may be cases within each one of those that, you know, we have to look at on a case by case basis. But for the most part, you know, if, if I've got a loan that's going to be less than $250,000, Barring any title issues, I can practically guarantee we can get that thing closed in 30 days or less. Especially around here, you know, I can two to three weeks is a very reasonable turnaround time, you know, on something that size. Now, of course, you know, the, when you start getting into those higher loan amounts, there are additional steps that have to be taken. You know, appraisals, potential surveys, um, title work may take longer, approval may take longer. You know, just as you go up in amount, it, it is going to be a little more time consuming, but still, you know. 30 to 45 days. Pretty yeah, standard. that's not bad. Daily, when it comes to folks looking at land, I would say 90% of the people that uh, look at my listings have no financing in place. They're, they're not prepared. Uh, even the day they're making the offer, you know, they, they haven't even contacted anyone about financing and they're starting right there. What about a pre-approval? If somebody wants to come in and get pre-approved by land through you guys, what does the process look like? How long does it take? Yeah, so the pre-approval process is, uh, I mean, it's pretty simple. A lot of people are doing that these days. And y'all know, you know, on your side of things where agents are, are starting to require pre-approval letters before they'll even show a property, which I think is a great idea. You know, it weeds out potential buyers, you know, kind of separates men from the boys, so to speak. But the process there is real simple. It's, it's the exact same as if you were doing it just getting ready to buy the land, you know, not, not just necessarily a pre-approval, but I'm going to run the numbers. I'll get, you, you know, get an application in, um, look, you know, tax returns, pay subs, it, depending on, you know, the size loan we're talking about, but time on that, you're look, still only looking at, you know, a day, maybe two for me to let you know. Yeah. If they've got now, the, of course, you know, the higher the amount goes, it may take a little bit more time because there'll be more work involved having to dig through taxes and go through the proper approvals. But yeah, you know, just a day or two and I can get you a letter. All right, Daly. Well, we covered a lot of ground, man, but I, I, I got to ask you the question I get all the time is tell me a quick rundown of terms. Most people don't understand what's available with regards to the length of the loan uh, and the down payment. So what are the possibilities? Do y'all do 30 year fixed with a 20% down payment uh, or do you have options all over the place? And we've got options all over the place. I, I've got, I've got terms from five years all the way up to 30 and we can fix it for 30 years. Um, down payment, you're going to be looking at 15 to 20%. A lot of that's going to have to do with the land itself and also, you know, the, the credit of the person that's applying. But I, there is no cookie cutter with land loans. So I can pretty much set something up. However, it's going to work best for my customer. Last question, Daly. We were talking about construction loans and I know a big part of the equation is if you're going to build on a property that built, whatever that improvement you make, I've heard it said, uh, there's a good article. In fact, uh, where one of your colleagues, Taylor Hartz mentioned over on greatdaysoutdoors.com about building a, you know, simple cabins and things of that nature. So when you're doing something like that, 
does that improvement improve the value of the dirt that is there or is it merely a it's just the value of that home can it improve the value of the dirt to put a cabin on it or a home on it you know that's a great question i've never really thought of it like that it it potentially could depending on the improvement itself i wouldn't necessarily say that when you're talking about land and larger tracks i don't know that a home or, or a single dwelling or something on there would actually improve the dirt value we would just look at it as more as an improvement value on top of the dirt value. Now, I, I suppose when you're talking about an acre or two and a home, it probably could have some effect on the dirt value. I, you know, not. I really can't say. I've never thought of it like that. That's interesting. To me, that answer is always, you know, it depends. You know, because it if you get somebody that on a a track that they overbuild uh, or over improve, whatever the case may be, you know, more than the market's willing to pay for that improvement then, you know, you're not going to get your money back out of that. So you've got to have some intrinsic value in it. Now, from the bank's perspective, it's hard to appraise intrinsic value. But, you know, the way I try to explain it to buyers and sellers is that, you know, this is sort of like a swimming pool. You're probably not going to get your money out of that $100,000 pool you put in. It has value, but cost does not equal value, especially in a rural setting. No, Clint, that's exactly right. Um, You know, a lot of times... Yeah, you, you, you may be paying $100,000 for a pool or or for an improvement of some kind, but if the market in the area where you're building on can't bear that amount, well, you're, you're not going to recoup that expense when you go to sell. There are a lot of times we see it, especially in rural areas, where a rural market can't can't handle or can't support an extravagant improvement on a piece of property. You know, the market just can't bear it. All right, Daly. Well, man, I'm sure enjoyed having you back on. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you over there at First South Farm Credit and uh, get some more information on the different loan products you have or maybe get a pre-approval done, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely, guys. No, I appreciate y'all having me on. I enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed catching up and talking talking banking again. But uh, no, if anybody wants, you know, has any other questions or wants to look at, you know, get the process started, whether it's pre-approval or just go ahead and jumping right into the loan, you can find all our contact info at firstsouthland.com, or you can reach me directly at the Birmingham office, uh, 205-970-6030. Well, Clint, you know, do you see that a lot where guy's got a property and he just builds too much, too much hunting camp for his, for his land? Yeah, we do. And it's, you know, keep in mind that it's relative to the number of acres you're building on. So those costs of those improvements spread across the acreage. So the more acreage you got for the larger improvements, the better it is and the, the better chance you'll have a recoup in that later. Yeah. I mean, you, you just because you spent the money uh, building it doesn't mean you're going to get it back. And uh, that can be a challenge when you're, you know, marketing a place too, because everybody knows how much they've put into it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the market's going to feel the same way. Yeah. Especially in a rural setting. And, you know, more times than not, what we see is the, the best chances of recouping or making money on your investment of that improvement is, is on water features. Yeah. Well, speaking of water, today's show is really all about forage fish, forage fish for ponds, raising trophy bass, or just raising your dinner. And uh, today we've got Norm Latona joining us again from Southeastern Pond Management. Norm, welcome back to Huntland. Hey, thanks guys. Great to be on. So, Norm, this time of year, here we are, middle of November, I can't believe it, but what are you guys doing a lot of in uh, pond management this time of year and into, into the winter? Uh, well, that's a good question, uh, Joe. We we actually stay pretty busy right up through about December. Everybody takes a little time off for the holidays and, and gets in the woods hunting and quits thinking so much about their lakes, but there's plenty to do. We stop our fertilizing, typically about this time of the year and so many of these lakes in the southeastern part of the country need need lime so we do a lot of liming in the winter time it's the best time of the year to do it if we can get around the weather uh, and get that to cooperate a little bit so we do a lot of liming in the winter make our our applications of agricultural limestone and quite honestly we we, we stock a lot of forage uh, as the as the water temperatures cool and the air temperatures cool, we get back into that time of the year where we can handle and move uh, forage fish with with better success. And and essentially, we're trying to get the lakes prepared to go into next spring. Make sure there's plenty to eat. There's going to be plenty to eat when everything kicks back off as as it starts to warm back up for us. You know, as early as late 
February and early March. We, we, we call that springtime. Those are kind of, kind of the things that we're doing this time of the year. For forage fish, how many, you know, how many different types of forage fish do you guys utilize? Goodness. Um, you know, lots of different types of forage. And a lot of times uh, it, it depends on uh, the objectives of the, of the uh, manager or lake owner. Uh, but there's lots of different options out there. You know, we have, we have a handful that we use quite frequently. Uh, and then we have others that we stock kind of on, uh, special kind of stocking situations, but, but primarily, uh, the, the, the primary species that we stock are threadfin shad, uh, tilapia. Uh, we stock a lot of gizzard shad. Again, that's kind of site specific. Uh, we stock crawfish. Uh, which are just outstanding forage for bass. Uh, we stock golden shiners. Occasionally, we'll even use trout. We stock a lot of trout in the fall and winter, uh, adult, catchable, eating-sized trout. And we do that as a seasonal stocking for folks that want to have something to catch in the wintertime because obviously trout are, are active in the wintertime and they tolerate our, our temperatures in the winter. But we also use trout as bass forage. Uh, we can stock smaller trout, uh, trout that are four, five, six, seven, eight inches long, and they're excellent bass forage in cases where you've got a really established quality and trophy size largemouth bass community. Well, um, you, So you we, we stock a lot uh, of different types of forage. You mentioned the trophy bass uh, and you mentioned trout. Uh, what are your favorites for really growing really big bass? I mean, it is, uh, is that it or, or what do you really like? Well, there's no question that the, the predominant species that we use in terms of supplementing forage, and, I, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention bluegill. Uh, bluegill are, are, are the predominant forage in virtually all the lakes that we manage. Uh, typically, when we stock early on, uh, when, we, when we initially stock lakes, we stock bluegill and largemouth bass. Uh, the reason bluegill are so are, are so important is that they spawn uh, like crazy. They spawn multiple times a year, and there are very few species that do that. So they're they're an awfully important uh, part of the forage base. They're kind of the the foundation of the forage base in most of the lakes that we deal with. And we even use bluegill uh, different sizes of bluegill from what we call an intermediate size which is a three or four, three to five inch, three, four, five inch bluegill. We even use bluegill as a supplemental uh, forage stocking. But in terms of what we add to what we call truly supplemental forage, I would say threadfin shad are, are far and away the most common. The reason being, they're very prolific. They're very fecund, meaning they, 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 they have super high reproductive capability, uh, in ponds that are that are otherwise well managed, where the water quality is managed, they reproduce a lot, multiple times a year. We get tip, we tend to see heavy spring spawns, and as well as throughout the summer, and then again heavy fall spawns. So we use threadfin shad a whole lot. So Norm, I'm going to make you go back to uh, to your Auburn education to answer my next question. It's kind of a dumb question, but I'm still going to ask you. I see a lot of questions about fathead minnows. And you you hear people use the term minnow a lot. What makes a minnow a minnow? <laughs> well, a fathead minnow is is it's just it's an actual species. Okay, it's it just like a, a bluegill or a golden shiner. Uh, you know, it, that's just the name the name of that particular fish. Uh, fathead minnows are uh, they're otherwise referred to as toughy minnows. They hear people call them toughy minnows or or rosy red or ruby red minnows. Okay, a lot of the a lot of the bait shops carry them, uh, and folks use them to to crappie as crappie fish fishing bait. But fathead minnows are are definitely a, a forage species that we utilize early on. Again, kind of like the bluegill with brand new lakes, we'll stock in addition to bluegill. Will stock fathead minnows, and because they'll they uh, they grow very rapidly, they reproduce early, early like February, March, and by the time the bass are stocked, in, in terms of that initial stocking, say in May or June, there tends to be a lot. Uh, there's a lot been a lot of reproduction, a lot of 
tiny little fathead minnows swimming around and those fingerling bass that go in, it's the perfect size prey. They're little half inch, you know, three quarter inch fathead minnows swimming around by the millions. And you'll notice that pretty rapidly those things disappear. And typically by the end of the first year, they're gone completely. You'll never see them again. You go from seeing clouds of them all over the bank to virtually none of them. And that's because bass are such an efficient predator. It's kind of a kickstart for bass. So we do not use fathead minnows to, to supplement the diets of, of adult bass. They're just, they simply don't get large enough. They don't reproduce frequently enough. They don't grow rapidly enough to make much of a difference. So we, we utilize those. It's a kind of a specialized situation. Under what conditions, I mean, should we introduce forage fish to ponds or lakes? Is there any red flags that we should be looking for to let us know we need it? Yeah, that's a great question, Clint. So largemouth bass are such efficient predators that when stocked with bluegill as their primary or sole forage, uh, they tend to eat themselves out of house and home, particularly if we don't really stay on top of harvest. So on average, we get a surplus production of largemouth bass in a bass bluegill scenario, uh, anywhere between 20 to you know, 35, 40, sometimes even 50 pounds to the acre. It's surplus. And if it's not removed, it just taxes that forage base. Uh, and over the course of time, multiple seasons, multiple generations, you get into what we what we refer to as bass crowded or predator crowded. And in some cases, it can be really extreme to where the, the vast majority of the bass, the predators in the lake, in the pond, are less than 12 inches in length. Some of them might be four or five years old, and they're still that small. You know, they're 12, 13 inches, and they're just not going to get a heck of a lot bigger because there's so much competition. So harvest is always important. And that's kind of a whole other topic. But the addition of supplemental forage species, adding threadfin shad, tilapia, crawfish, gizzard shad, uh, golden shiners, etc., it's it's a response to the extreme predatory behavior of these bass to, to help prevent them from eating themselves out of house and home. So a lot of times we go into these lakes and we see uh, signs that the fish community, the fish population is skewed heavily toward that bass crowded condition. And that's where we recommend supplemental forage. We typically recommend it along with or sometimes preceded by intensive bass harvest. And that's an important part of it. Like I can't stress that enough. Stocking forage is not really a magic bullet. It's certainly a big part though of pushing those fish those bass into that quality and trophy size range that so many of our customers are looking for. And by the way, that's all relative. We define a quality size bass. Quality size is somewhere in that 16 to 20 inch range and anything larger than 20 we call trophy, but it's just, it's just semantics. That's just how we kind of define it. So we use those, that supplemental forage. It's indicated when we see signs that the existing forage base is not adequate to to feed those fish. Is that, to a layman like me, does that mean skinny bass and big brim? It does, yeah. Typically, that's how it presents. Uh, The other thing that we take a look at that you might not notice as a person that is an angler, okay, you you, you see these bass are are skinny. Uh, You know, most of them are 12, 13, 14 inches long and racy thin, there are lots and lots of really big bluegill, way too large for that that average bass to get his mouth around. So it's that, that doesn't those big bluegill don't represent forage to that bass, other than they reproduce. Okay, but the other thing we look at, and we're able to do this with electrofishing, is we we look at the number of intermediate size forage in our electrofishing sample, and in cases where there is extreme predator crowded, bass crowded condition, that intermediate size, what we call define intermediate is three to five inches. In in those cases, in extreme cases, they're almost non-existent. So here's what's happening. The bass are all 12, 13, 14 inches, the vast majority of them. They have to eat to survive. 
they can't eat those giant bluegill that are bigger than your hand. I mean, there's no way they can get them in their mouth. And there's so many of them, they're starving. As soon as those bluegill reproduce, they spit out hundreds of thousands, millions of little tiny fry that grow pretty rapidly up to an inch long, say, maybe even an inch and a half or two inches long. But you got this massive seine net of, uh, you know, a gill net of largemouth bass starving to death. And all they can eat in the lake is this reproduction of the bluegill. So they just hammer it. And as a consequence, very few of those bluegill, very, very few of those bluegill fry make it past about two inches. So you have almost no intermediate size forage. The Unfortunately, what is key for those bass that are racy thin, 13, 14 inch thin bass, in order for them to jump to that next level to get up toward that quality size, they've got to be eating something three or four or five inches long. Uh, otherwise, it's just so inefficient. It's like trying to gain weight eating rice one grain at a time. And uh, so they just tax the, the forage base to the point where there's just not adequate forage for them to grow. And that's where supplemental forage comes in, coupled with harvest. Okay, we take the top end off with either hook and line or electrofishing harvest. And then we come back in and we introduce something like threadfin shad that grow extremely rapidly up to three or four or five inches long. And, and suddenly we give these bass that are skinny and starving something to eat. We Sometimes we use, we'll just directly introduce intermediate size bluegill. We'll stock four inch, five inch bluegill. Uh, they're sexually mature uh, and, they're bi- and they're big enough for these bass to, to gain something from eating them, if that makes sense. Depending on what we're using, I guess here, is there a better time of year than others or water temperature or what are we shooting for? Yeah, we stock threadfin shad. The good thing about threadfins is they, I have, I have personally seen threadfin shad spawn in ponds, okay, virtually every month of the year. As crazy as that sounds. I mean, I have seen them spawn in December and January. I've watched it with my own eyes. So what triggers their reproduction is beyond seasonality, which is a great thing in ponds. They tend to, I think they'll sense, you know, when their density gets to a certain point and, you know, when the water quality is excellent for their growth, they're just always ready to go. So, but in terms of stocking times, we tend to stock them in the spring and the summer. We do some stocking in the fall as well. About the only time of the year we don't really mess with them in terms of stocking them is in the, the coldest part of the winter. And they're a little bit difficult to handle when it gets really, really cold. And, and that's really what it comes down to with forage stocking. Uh, all of our bluegill, our intermediate bluegill forage stocking comes in the early spring and in the fall. Uh, in the in the summertime, whereas threadfin shad handle great, we can transport those without excessive mortality in in the in the really hot water. Bluegill are not like that, so we don't we we tend to not stock them in the summertime. So the timing, uh, we'd like to have forage available in the springtime, as early in the spring as we can, because that's when things really start kicking off right around the bass spawn, just ahead of the bass spawn. And then again in the fall, going into the dormant period, going into December, January, February, we'd love to have lots of forage for bass to not have to work too hard to fatten up going into the the wintertime. And is there anything we need to do in terms of water levels? Not really. Yeah, water 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 level, particularly in ponds, is is not a, is not a big factor now. Uh, some some folks will lower water levels in the winter time to help manage vegetation to maybe to make way to to go in and do some renovation projects on piers and shoreline areas and things of that nature and and for the most part that's not really a factor there there extremes of that uh can create some problems in terms of you're taking away a lot of times when you drop drop a lake two three four feet you depending on the cover and kind of the natural habitat in the lake, you can, in some cases, take away a lot of cover for the forage and make them a little more exposed. But generally speaking, that's not a big factor. So you just want to make sure there's no extremes one end or the other going on. That That's right. We have lots of folks who, who choose to drop their lakes for a variety of reasons, a foot or two or three 
in the wintertime. Probably the biggest reason is the, the lake for vegetation control purposes, try to expose that those shallow flats, that shoreline area that tends to, to be inundated with vegetation. If you can expose that and get a hard freeze on it, it, it does help to retard nuisance vegetation and that comes back in the springtime. Okay. Norm, is there a is there a rule of thumb? Uh so if a guy says I you know I got a I've got a three acre uh lake and and I'm trying to figure out about how much forage I want to put in. Do you guys have a rule of thumb of how you go about determining the right amount? Yeah, interestingly, and we've been doing this for a long time, particularly stocking threadfin shad, uh, certainly 20 plus years. Threadfin shad are, are a little different than, say, bluegill, which is which are obviously a common forage in lakes. Bluegill tend to be shoreline-oriented. Uh, they're structure-oriented. Their their primary defense is hiding from the predators in the in the shoreline cover. Uh, you know that's kind of what what a bluegill is trying to do live in live in in the shadows, live in the brush and in the treetops. And threadfin shad are entirely different. They 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 are open water fish. So uh, as a consequence, they, they don't really have much of, the, of a defense other than to get out in the open water where the predators don't tend to in those areas where predators don't tend to occupy. And they school, and 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 that's their defense. So, consequently, in 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 larger bodies of water, we get away with much lower stocking rates in terms of in, numbers per acre than we do in smaller bodies of water. Uh, so, in other words, you know, whereas we might stock a thousand per acre in a ten acre lake, uh, we might have to stock two or three thousand per acre in a three acre lake to accomplish the same goal. Obviously, a 10-acre lake tends to have more open water, and those uh, those thread fins uh, have a little better defense mechanism built in. So generally speaking, on larger lakes, uh, you know, 10 acres or better, we like to introduce about 1,000 per acre. We tend to talk about thread fin shad in what we call loads, which is is more of an industry term that we that we use, but so in a 10-acre lake, we might stock a load of threadfin shad. That's about 10,000 sexually mature adult threadfin shad. In a 20-acre lake, we might stock two loads or 20,000. In a three-acre lake, uh, if you use that same math, you'd just stock maybe 3,000. But again, because of that, but the different dynamic that's going on from a defense standpoint, we tend to increase that stocking ratio, stocking density, so we might stock that same 10,000 threadfin shad in a three-acre lake to get them established that we do in a 10-acre lake, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I'm learning right now is that it sounds like in a properly managed pond, stocking forage fish is a one-time event, uh, assuming you do what you need to do with harvest and, and nothing happens. Is that right? Or is this something that's got to be done every few years? And It can be, and, and ideally that's the way it works. So threadfin shad, and we keep talking about threadfins, it's, the, 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 it's not quite the same answer for every species, and I'll elaborate. But threadfin shad, uh, if the lake is otherwise managed properly, like you said, and we can stay on top of our harvest, uh, they are definitely sustainable. They live through the winter um, very rarely. I say very rarely. Every six, eight, ten years, on average, it, this far south, we'll get a winter that's harsh enough to really put a dent in the threadfin shad population. They they don't tolerate, and I've, they'll even have massive die-offs out on the rivers, uh, and I've I've seen it happen. You know, and typically it doesn't eradicate them. But it will reduce their numbers down to a point where sometimes restocking is is indicated. But other than that, other than a than a really super harsh winter, uh, threats and shad are, are sustainable. So if we manage the other parameters, if we manage the other pieces uh, properly, it is something sustainable and not something that you have to do uh, with frequency. Other species that we use quite a bit, like tilapia, for example. Um, which most states in the southeast allow, they they will not tolerate cold at all. So the water temps get down into the 40s for any extended period, which happens virtually every year in every pond in the southeast. Uh, they die. Uh, so that's something that ha- they do have to be re- restocked uh, on an annual basis. Uh, but for the most part, 
that's correct. These uh, these fish that we stock, these forage species that we stock, if otherwise the lakes are managed properly, uh, they should yield uh, benefits for many, many seasons. Norm, so far we've been talking about, you know, forage fish and just in generalities, are there any differences to what you've recommended and what you're saying when it comes to really trying to raise trophy bass, like we talked about earlier, as opposed to just having a a pond full of fish that are, you know, there for catching and for eating and yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. That's a great question too. Um, so threads and shad grow up to about uh, five inches. Five or six inch thread fin shad is a is a trophy thread fin shad. I mean that that's a big one. The good news is they they reproduce a lot. They grow very rapidly, particularly if the water quality and the fertility is is kept at a desirable level in terms of fish production. And so uh, and they they grow very rapidly up to that size. So they're they're great forage to produce those what we call quality size fish to push those 10, 12, 13, 14 inch bass up to 16, 17, 18, 19 inches. Those really large bass, when they get up to 21, 22, 23 inches, those fish that are are in that trophy size, those eight, nine, 10 plus pound fish. uh, Again, you get into that same, in terms of bioenergetics, if if you're large, and you're chasing around a tiny little piece of food just to sustain yourself, then you're probably backing up in terms of growth. Uh, so same thing applies uh, to those larger bass that applies to those 8 and 10 and 12-inch bass that I was talking about earlier, having to chase around a little one-inch bluegill. So to push those lakes into the, those trophy lakes, we we like to provide them a a little bit bigger piece of food, okay? Something that that one one bite makes a difference. That's where we start using things like gizzard chat, for example. We'll stock crawfish um, because those are really easy to uh, for those bass to catch and consume. They're loaded with all protein, and so. Gizzard shad grow much larger than for a threadfin shad. The gizzard shad will, will will outgrow, in fact, what a ten or twelve inch bass could consume. You know, they'll get ten or twelve uh, inches in in length themselves. But those certainly those large bass uh, can can consume the much big bigger prey item. Those larger bass also can get their mouth around those seven, eight, nine inch bluegill believe it or not, and I've watched it. So larger bluegill become become an important part of the forage base when you've got those trophy-sized fish swimming around. So, Norm, I mean, why forage fish and not just fish food? I mean, like Joe and I have discussed a few times with this off the air about the, you know, we see feeders and, and things like that all around, you know, whether you're talking about deer hunting or managing fish, I mean, why is the high-quality fish food not enough? Yeah, well, and we, we utilize supplemental feeding quite a bit. In fact, most of our the better lakes have supplemental feeding programs. That That's designed primarily to feed the forage fish, which in turn obviously benefits the predators. But for the most part, those larger adult predators, the bass in particular, they just won't consume that that fish food, uh, certainly with not enough consistency to to push them up uh, to the to the growth rates that we're looking for. They just it's just not uh, part of their DNA. They they're just looking for for live prey, and so uh, it's difficult to get largemouth bass, in particular adult largemouth bass, larger fish. Uh, to eat even that high protein fish food. So that's why we don't uh, just turn it over to the feeders. So Norm, the big and final question, if you had to pick one forage fish, what would it be? Well, you know, as I mentioned, uh, bluegill and bass uh, go well together. And so it's important to understand that uh, when we talk about supplemental stocking, we're talking about what we add to a bass bluegill pond. But in terms of supplemental species, something that I would add, the first one I would pick would be threadfin shad that we've talked about already quite a bit. And shad are just, they're so productive, they're so prolific, they're so durable, for the most part sustainable. They're just an outstanding 
uh, source bass food. And we've seen more results, positive results, in terms of producing those quality and pushing those fish toward that trophy size using threadfin shad than any others. Obviously, as we get into further down the road and we're trying to push fish from quality up to that trophy size, there's some other things that we'd probably come in and, and want to add. But in terms of just something that, that adds to the food source, the, the everyday food supply for largemouth bass, I think it's hard to beat threadfin shad. It sounds like it. Norm, with threadfin and, and, or any other forage fish, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about the importance of harvest and how forage fish are important, but without proper harvest, they don't work as well as they can. They're not as efficient. Are there any forage, in, in knowing numerous landowners who have ponds, that's always the biggest challenge for them, at least from what I take away, is that getting just getting, getting to their property and, and taking the pounds out of the lake that they need to take out of is is uh it's tough for them to accomplish uh if they're absentee yeah. owners is there are there any forage fish that can kind of compete in a way with bass i guess assist in that that harvest so that they don't have as much of a harvest requirement we see a little bit of that with threadfin shad and even gizzard shad and so uh, some of the research and it gets a little bit complicated but some of the research indicates that the presence of, of shad, either thread fins or gizzards or both, does tend to reduce what we refer to as bass recruitment, which is, so it doesn't necessarily stem reproduction, but it reduces the number of bass that make it past uh, one year of age. Uh, in other words, what we call a recruit into the population. Once they make it past their first year, we tend to consider them a permanent part of the fish community. So the presence of threadfin and gizzard shad and some of the complexities that that occur on down the food chain, the way that they compete with bluegill, for example, and the way that they dampen bluegill reproduction, uh, ultimately, the research indicates that they can reduce the amount of largemouth bass recruitment. And for us, that's a positive thing because like you said, Joe, stocking forage, stocking threadfin chad, gizzard chad, tilapia, golden shiners, crawfish, et cetera, alone is typically not enough. It, it helps. It definitely provides more food for the hungry bass that are swimming around, the saber-toothed tigers of the 21st century as my old fisheries professor used to refer to them, uh, it helps. But ultimately, those bass are so efficient uh, in their predatory habits that they will uh, eat themselves out of house and home if you don't control that surplus. So harvest is always an important component to managing a fishery optimally. Norman, if folks want to get more information about stocking their pond, whether it's forage fish or or bass or bluegill or any anything y'all do so much uh or they just want to talk to you guys and kind of get some consultation on what they've got going on with their current pond or a pond they're thinking about building what's the best way for them to uh, contact you guys yeah sure so we're pretty old school we've got a toll-free number for for folks that's uh 888-830- P-O-N-D, 888-830-P-O-N-D, which is 830-7663. Uh, certainly, they can reach out through our website, which is www.sepond.com. Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, but feel free to pick up the phone and call us directly. You can ask for me or, or any of our biologists. We have offices in Mississippi, near Jackson, Mississippi, up near Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in Auburn, Alabama, and here in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and we'll be sure and take care of you. Clint, I was pretty surprised to find out that, uh, you know, stock and forage fish is potentially a sustainable thing. I, I kind of figured it would be like a lot like supplemental feeding program where you're going to stock fish once every year, once every few years. I didn't realize that you could stock shad and they could develop a breeding population. That's pretty cool. What'd you, uh, what'd you take away? It's similar. It, Main thing for me was that that it's not a comprehensive solution for growing trophy bass. You know, it's really about a, a combination of all your efforts. You know, it sounds like catching out um, excess numbers 
is is a big part of this that a lot of people I think don't think about. They just think, well, I've got small, thin, hungry bass. I need to feed them more, and it's not always the case. A lot of times, you need to take out a lot of fish, and and um, you know, I have that talk with clients a lot that you know they want to have these big, expansive lakes. Well, it takes a lot of effort to keep those maintained at the level that you have in your mind when you build them. It's all about you know just understanding you know how many components there are to really growing the kind of fish you want to grow and it's not just about you know dumping a bunch of shad in as a as a one-time solution that's right it's very similar if you took out the if you took out the nouns it would sound a lot like deer management because you know thinking that you're going to put forage fish into your pond from talking to norm you know think thinking that you're going to put those in and all, all of a sudden have big bass is like going out and plunking a protein feeder out in the middle of a, a clear cut and uh and thinking you're going to grow big deer. Uh, you know, you still need to manage your habitat with prescribed fire and work on your predators and, you know, let younger deer get to maturity and let them age. And there's all kinds of other things that are going to have to be done in concert uh, with a supplemental feeding program to be able to grow the kind of animals you want to grow. And the same applies for fish. And um, yeah, I, but it does sound like those guys over there really understand the best forage fish for ponds, depending on what your goals are. You know, I mean, obviously it sounds like they like threadfin shad, but, uh, maybe golden shiners are right for you, or maybe, maybe you need to be putting in something else altogether or bluegill. It just really depends on your unique pond and a lot like what we see in the land industry. It's hard to make blanket statements, uh, about land. And it sounds like it's pretty tough to make them about ponds as well. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up this week. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast each week, just send us an email at pros at landhunting.com. We'll email you the podcast and we sure appreciate you listening. Take a minute to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We definitely appreciate hearing from you. Uh, any feedback you have on the show, it's much appreciated and it really helps the show as well. Until next week, you guys stay safe out there. Enjoy these fall hunting seasons. We'll talk to you again soon. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.